Welcome to Uncommon Knowledge. I'm Peter Robinson. Heather McDonald is a fellow at the Manhattan Institute and an editor of City Journal. She holds a bachelor's degree from Yale, a master's degree from Cambridge, and a law degree from Stanford. Heather is the author of a number of books, including the best-selling volume, The War on Cops. Her newest book, The Diversity Delusion, How Race and Gender Pandering Corrupt the University and Undermine Our Culture. Heather, welcome. Thank you, Peter. It's an honor. Heather, 2015 at your alma mater, Yale University. Ah. Here is the sequence of events. <laughs> the administration sends an email suggesting that the students use caution in choosing their Halloween costumes so as not to offend other students. Of course. One lecturer at Yale, a woman called Erica Christakis, sends an email saying that maybe students ought to value the importance of free speech and perhaps push back against the idea that administrators tell them what Halloween costumes to wear. Her husband, Nicholas Christakis, who, by the way, is a very accomplished physician and sociologist, sends an email supporting his wife's position. It happens that he's the master of one of the Yale colleges, Silliman College. And then this is what happens in the courtyard of Silliman College. <laughs> The exception is because other people have rights too, not just walk, you. Walk away. Walk away. It doesn't deserve to be listened to. Unsafe behavior. Stay quiet. For all students. Do you understand that? As your position as master, it is your job to create a place of comfort and home for the students that live in Silliman. You have not done that. By sending out that email, that goes against your position as master. Do you understand that? Then no, I stop. don't agree with that. Heather, there we have 19 and 20-year-old students defying the master of a Yale college and telling him that it's his job to create a place of comfort and home. What are we to make of this? It's the cultural revolution. This is the nadir of American education. This sort of insanity, the, the narcissistic victimology of these students thinking of themselves as oppressed at Yale is the height of delusion. And yet, they are a product of the Yale bureaucracy. They are being encouraged in this sort of complete hysteria. Another moment in this three-hour tirade that was directed at Nicholas Christakis. That we, we gave, what was that, 30 seconds 30 of something seconds. that lasted it, it, for it three gets, hours. It gets worse than that. Mm -hmm. The cursing, the disrespect, it is utterly shocking. One group of students shouted out, were dying, allegedly referring to the endangered status of Yale's minority students. The kicker is this. The president of Yale, a little bit after this outrageous episode, conferred a racial justice prize on two of the participants and said that he'd never been so proud of his student body. Uh, and promised, life. and promised, if I have this correct, and promised to add fifty million dollars to the diversity budget of the university. Well, that was actually a promise made before, but ah. he reiterated it just to encourage the uh, notion that Yale was trying to erase discrimination at Yale. And Nicholas Christakis resigned as master of Silliman College. And his wife resigned as a teacher at Yale completely, uh, because they were the then target of. Uh, vandalism, there was graffiti on their house. Uh, 
the, at the graduation that year, students refused to shake his hand. This is completely out of control, Peter. And this is—Yale is not right, alone. So 2017, a little more recent incident, Claremont McKenna, where you yourself had been invited to speak. Yes. I want to come to the reasons for what on earth is going on first, but first I want to establish what is going on, how bad it is, which you—I have to say I thought I had an idea, but it, the book is shocking. Students, you are invited to speak at Claremont McKenna. Students circulate a statement that reads, I am quoting this mm -hmm. because I couldn't make it up. <laughs> Heather McDonald is a fascist, mm -hmm. a white supremacist, yeah. a war hawk, yeah. a transphobe, a queerphobe, <laughs> a classist, and ignorant of interlocking systems of domination that produce the lethal conditions under which oppressed peoples are forced to live, yes. close quote. They're ignorant of grammar, but we will leave it aside because <laughs> colleges are not supposed to teach good writing, right? They're simply supposed to teach victim identity. So what happened to you when you attempted to speak at Claremont? Well, the students blockaded the auditorium and didn't let anybody in. I had to be brought in under police escort through a back alley through the kitchen, uh, a secret passageway, but nobody else could get in because about 200 students were outside banging on the plate glass windows. I gave my talk, which was on policing and a counter-narrative to the Black Lives Matter uh, nonsense, calumnies against the cops, to an empty room. Uh, but the students were still outside banging on the plate glass windows and shouting. And at some point, the police decided they couldn't guarantee my safety any longer. And I was escorted out back through the kitchen into a waiting squad car. Wow. And disciplinary, disciplinary measures against the, the kids who broke up, who made, that, made it impossible effectively for you to speak to the audience? What happened to the kids? Well, this was unusual in that there was some, some discipline, some discipline, a suspension of a semester for a hand, maybe two or three, and a full year suspension for another two or three. Uh, some of the students were from the neighboring Claremont colleges. Claremont itself claims that these were the only Claremont students it could identify. I don't know. I'm not going to second guess them. What I would say, though, is that the faculty are basically passive. They lie down before these things. They should be out there. They've got the privilege of tenure to protect their freedom of yes. speech, not that they use that very much, because, Peter, as you know, any, any faculty member on a college campus today who is anything other than far left is walking around scared to death. The censorship that's going on is extraordinary. Including self-censorship self is the point you're making Self-censorship. But the faculty are silent before these outbreaks of, of, of uh, thuggish, fascist type of behavior. That's what's happening. How did it happen? How did we reach this point? Let me quote the diversity delusion, Heather. A charged set of ideas now dominates higher education, that human beings are defined by their skin color, sex, and sexual preference, and that discrimination based on those characteristics has been the driving force in Western civilization. These ideas have remade the university." Close quote. All right, a touch of intellectual history. Where did these ideas come from, and how did they become ascendant? It's a very complicated uh, question, Peter. And I, I, one can observe the trajectory. The final cause question 
has to be speculative. Mm -hmm. I can tell you that when I was in college in the 70s, I was susceptible to a totally ridiculous set of ideas that were known as deconstruction and post-structuralism. This was a, a set of theories about how language and literature works. Unfortunately, I was not critical enough. I, I bought it hook, line, and sinker. You were 19 years old. I was 19, and I was interested in language. Nevertheless, I feel very fortunate in that I was allowed to read, when I was a college student at Yale, Chaucer, Milton, Spencer, and Wordsworth without anyone thinking to complain about the go their gonads and melanin. Feminism and multiculturalism didn't hit. It came in the 80s. Right. At Stanford, where you are now, at, at Hoover, you had the awful moment of the assault on Stanford's very minimal core curriculum, Jesse Jackson in there leading chants of, hey, hey, ho, ho, Western Civ has got to go. And you had this geyser explosion of the idea that students should only read books that conform to their own identity, defined as narrowly and trivially as possible. Heather, distinguish between the student radicalism of the 60s mm -hmm. and what's taking place today. I, I find in conversation with friends, there's a little too much willingness to shrug the shoulders and say, oh, well, they're just students. We've gotten used to that kind of the, the place. Universities are a place for a certain amount of craziness, and that's been going on for half a century. But this is different. Well, it's the same in that, you know, I, I think the problem with the 60s is one can make a facially plausible argument that there was grounds to protest the Vietnam War. Right. I'm agnostic on that. I'm not going to take a side. But, mm -hmm. but that was an idea that was, had some validity. So, you know, a, a broken clock is right twice a day. Every so often, student protesters are right. Usually they're not. Usually they don't deserve any attention. Why should I listen to student protesters about capitalism? They've never had a job. They've never run a business. They know nothing about what it's like to try and master a supply chain, to try and understand supply and demand and customer demands. This is, this is an act of entrepreneurial courage that none of these students have. Nevertheless, in the 60s, we all thought, ah, the students, they are tribunals of truth. And from then on, we glorified student protest. And so when it rose up again in the 80s, around these even these narrow, narrow ideas of student victimization, which again is delusional. There's no more privileged human being in history than a college student because he has a, at his fingertips the thing that Faust sold his soul for, which is knowledge. We still glorify this and say, well, if students at Yale and Princeton say they're victimized by racism, we better do something about it. Right, right. The diversity delusion takes up topic after topic after topic. We don't have time for all of them, alas. But here's one, affirmative action. Again, I'm quoting the diversity delusion. A growing, this is your argument, strong argument here. A growing body of empirical evidence is undermining the claim that racial preferences in college benefit their recipients. That is to say, affirmative action may not do any good at all anyway. Right. Explain your argument. Absolutely. And this, to me, is the most powerful argument against racial preferences. I'm frankly fed up with the traditional Supreme Court jurisprudence. I think it's incoherent. Uh, the, they should just junk it. The real argument against racial preferences, as far as I'm concerned, is that they harm their alleged beneficiaries. When you put a student in an academic environment 
for which he is not competitively qualified, you're putting him at a disadvantage. We can take this out of the race realm entirely. Right. Let's say that MIT decides it needs to boost its gender parity, right. which it is doing all the time when it comes to faculty, and admits me with a 650 on my math SATs on an 800-point scale. Everybody else at MIT, however, has scored 800s. Right. They've gotten a perfect score on their math SATs. What's going to happen to me my first year when I have not aced Six, advanced calculus. 650 is a pretty good score, but you're going to feel stupid. It's a standard deviation away, and I am going to struggle. I am not going to be able to keep up in those classes. Right. And I face two choices. I can either say I was admitted to a school for which I was not prepared, or I'm in a rape culture, and I'm surrounded by microaggressions and patriarchy. And let's move this back into race now. There's not a single selective college in the country, Peter, that is not employing vast racial preferences to admit black students because the skills gap is so great. That's what's driving a lot of this victimology, is students are being brought in, they can't compete, and they end up blaming phantom racism for their intellectual and psychological difficulties. Heather, you discuss, again, the diversity delusion. You discuss a recent study at Duke. I'm going to quote this. this a little bit of a setup here, but it's fascinating material. Quote, of incoming students who reported a major, more than 76% of black male freshmen at Duke intended to major in the hard sciences right. or economics, hard material. But more than half of those would-be black science majors switched track. They moved from the hard sciences to softer disciplines, humanities, for example, so that by senior year, only 35% of black males graduated with science or economics degrees, while more than 63% of white males did. What is the significance of this? Well, if you believe what is now the reigning mantra in our society, which is the only good science is diverse science, now I think that's ridiculous, but that's now what's going on. If our goal is to graduate more black scientists, racial preferences work against that goal. If those students who'd been admitted to Duke, the black students, with over a standard deviation of, of gap in their entering freshman credentials, had gone instead to North Carolina University, a perfectly respectable yes. school, for heaven's sakes, where they met the, the qualifications of their peers, they would stand a much greater chance of graduating in good standing with a science degree. What I find extraordinary about this entire discourse about racial preferences, those who justify it from universities, is its rank snobbery and elitism. The idea is, if you're a black student, you can only succeed if you go to the elite schools. That Heaven forbid, you know, in the University of California, the voters, in their wisdom, tried to ban Prop 209, right? racial preferences. The university twisted itself into knots to try and evade them. And you would have things like the chancellor of UC Berkeley saying, but where will we get the leaders of tomorrow if we don't have racial preferences? Implying that anybody who graduates from University of California, Riverside, say, or Santa Cruz, his Which life are is over. Very good schools. Very good schools. His life is over. If it's so inhibiting and handicapping for a black student to go to UC Riverside, why should anybody go? Why don't we close down all these second and third tier schools so everyone can go to Harvard and UC Berkeley? So, all right. So let me let me. Is this an accurate summary? Many students 
we've been discussing African-Americans who are brought in on the basis of racial preferences do have a charge to make against their universities. Yes. They have been brought into institutions in which they cannot succeed right. with the ease or aplomb of their white counterparts in order to make the overwhelmingly white liberals who run those universities feel good about themselves. A, a material, they have actually been put at a material disadvantage for the sake of some liberal idiot. Is that right or am I, have I got it wrong? Am I overstating the case? No, you have stated They have a reason perfectly. to be angry. They have a reason to be angry. Well, they won't see it this way, but it is a diabolical system. It is now a completely self-perpetuating, it's a perpetual motion machine of grievance. It's, it's, it's uncanny the way the preference regime interacts with the diversity bureaucracy so that you are generating a steady supply of students. You know, there was these wave of Black Lives Matter protests in 2015 on college campuses. Right. They issued, every college issued the demands, and these were collected. You can still find them on the web. What was very odd when I first started reading them until I figured out what was going on, school after school, these black students are saying, we need more mental health resources. And you thought, really? I mean, what's going on there? But in fact, they feel very stressed out because, again, you hear these complaints about, well, nobody chooses us for study groups. This is attributed, of course, to the bigotry on the white students. The reason is, it's very sad, is, again, you have been admitted to a school for which you're qualified. No one is saying, I am not saying, Peter, that black students should go to college. I'm saying they should go to college on the same footing as everybody else with a chance to compete against their peers. But now we've got this codependency, this symbiotic relationship between the racial preference so-called beneficiaries and a diversity bureaucracy set up to try and combat the racism that is making them feel uncomfortable uh, at, at Duke or at, at Yale or at UC Berkeley. The campus rape myth. Huh. Again, the diversity delusion. Quote, <clears throat> the campus rape industry's central tenet is that one-fifth to one-quarter of all college girls will be raped or become the targets of attempted rape by the end of their college years. No crime, much less one as serious as rape, has a victimization rate remotely approaching yes. 20 or 25 percent, close quote. Explain. It's a complete fraud. Detroit is our most violent city. If you combine all four of the violent felonies that the FBI collects in its index crime, that's murder, rape, robbery, and aggravated assault. You combine all of those together, you get an annual violent crime rate of 2%. One quarter to one, 20 percent to one quarter, even over four years, is more than the worst African Civil War's experience in terms of sexual violence. If this were going on, you would have seen a stampede decades ago to get females out of these tsunamis of sexual violence. No mother would send her daughter into a situation of that degree of sexual predation. Instead, the stampede, Peter, as I'm sure you observe at Stanford every year, is the opposite direction. It's highly sophisticated, educated right. mothers 
paying $200 an hour when their daughter is three years old to try and qualify her for the most elite preschool in order to hope that she gets into Harvard 16 years later. The, the percentage of females on college campuses grows each year. The, the admissions ratios diminish because so many people want to get in. The whole thing is ridiculous. Either if we're supposed to believe in strong women together and that there's female solidarity, why aren't they warning each other off of these scenes of sexual predation? Instead, you can go to University of Virginia every Saturday night on Rugby Road. The girls are, 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 are walk, trooping off to the frat parties that the sexual, the campus rape industry tells us are virtual rape factories. And yet they go every Saturday night. What gives? Either girls are stupid and they are voluntarily walking into these scenes of predation or it's not going on. Again, the diversity delusion. <clears throat> the default for premarital sex in the wider society is now yes rather than no. We've had the sexual revolution. Right. The policy of mutual consent that these bureaucracies on campus are putting in place may be laughably out of touch with reality, but its agenda is serious to rehabilitate the no as the default position for premarital sex, close quote. Yep. So, so what? So the college, what we see on the colleges is a reaction against the sexual revolution, not that the bureaucracies would ever dream of putting it anything like that exactly. way. Exactly. Is that so? Exactly. I, I mean, I think what's going on is sexual liberation is having a nervous breakdown. Uh, it, it, it turns out that it made a profoundly incorrect assessment about the male and female libidos. It thought that the female libido was ready to go mano a mano with the male libido, you know, all normative, all normative restraints taken away, and that females would celebrate a regime of one-night stand, casual sex, drunken hookup sex, the way the males do, who want to have as much no-strings-attached sex as possible. They're set up biologically, evolutionarily for that. Uh, and it turns out that's not the case. There is not an epidemic of sexual assault and rape on college campuses. There is an epidemic of regret, uh. of feeling taken advantage of, of feeling like, well, I have some emotional twinge after that one night stand that females feel. They have a different physiological re reaction to sexual intercourse. The guy's off there joking around with his buds, and she's saying, well, why isn't he noticing me in class? And the campus rape bureaucracy then gives you a nice way of repackaging your sense of loss, confusion, embarrassment, regret. It was rape. Uh, and before... When, before sexual liberation did a number on civilization's eons-long, hard-won understanding of the differences between males and females, the default for premarital sex was set at no. Right. That gave females power over the male. The male had to bargain the female out of the no default. Sexual revolution turned that around. The default is now yes, and it's up to the female to argue her way into a no, and that is tough. And, and a women lot of are females, sick of that. Yeah, they're sick of it. And they just say, oh, well, it's a lot easier to just say yes than to have to provide reasons why not to have sex. But the weird thing is, you know, the sexual liberation on campuses began with a demand, 
get the bureaucrats out of our bedroom. We want to have all the coitus we want un, un, unsupervised. Now, these same students are asking the bureaucracy to write 40-page extremely complicated rules for sex, which is the very realm of the chthonic and irrational. And Heather writes of her fellow conservatives in the diversity delusion, conservatives display exasperation at, the sex, at sex regulations for taking the fun out of college sex. Conservatives get this wrong. Yes. In fact, taking the fun out of college sex is the only upside to the whole sordid situation. <laughs> That's true. There's no downside. You know. I, I get and I agree that the, the campus rape tribunals are kangaroo courts and males are being railroaded. Nevertheless, just as a girl can avoid 100% what is now characterized as campus rape by not drinking herself blotto and getting into bed with a guy she doesn't know and taking off her clothes, a guy can also almost 100% avoid being accused falsely of campus rape by acting with chivalry and as a gentleman, you walk your girlfriend home at night, you kiss her goodnight, and you go home to your own room and you write her a love poem at 2 a.m. Uh, there is no downside if this campus rape hysteria and the crusade against males results in a sudden increase in abstinence. It's not as if we're like overregulating production of I'm natural gonna, gas. I'm going to read this because it may be my favorite quotation in the, in the entire book, which is full of marvelous writing. The Thank solution you. is not more complex procedural protections cobbled over a sordid sexual culture. The solution is to reject that culture entirely. Society has no interest in preserving the collegiate bacchanal. <laughs> Should college fornication become a rare event preceded by signing contracts, maybe students would actually do some studying again. Exactly. By the way, you, there must be some special award somewhere for the, the, most, the last unselfconscious use of the word fornication. <laughs> I'm sure that's going to get me a hate crime uh, accusation somehow. Heather, last questions. Affirmative action. The Supreme Court's ruling in the 2003 case, uh, Grutter versus Bollinger, Justice Sandra Day O'Connor, now long retired, but she wrote for the majority in that case, quote, the court expects that 25 years from now, the use of racial preferences will no longer be necessary. Now that we're more than halfway through that 25-year period, do you see any sign? that universities are backing away from the use of racial preferences? No, they're fighting tooth and nail to preserve this. Uh, they, they, the, the presidents want to feel noblesse oblige that but for their racial preferences, you know, they wouldn't look out over their marvelously diverse realm. It makes them feel superior to redneck America, that they believe it's composed exclusively of deplorable bigots. And the sad fact is, is that the driving force behind all of this, which is the academic skills gap between blacks and whites has not closed. The average black 12th grader still reads at the level of the average white 8th grader. That is really a problem, Peter. And uh, But the solution is not preferences in college. There's got to be a cultural revolution uh, in the black home that puts a priority on education that we see with Asians. They're whooping everybody's ass because they are so single-mindedly focused on academic accomplishment. Actually, use that. I didn't write it down, but you have in the book, I'll remind you, and then you take us through it, the mind experiment, uh -huh, the mental, right, the thought exactly. experiment, rather. G give us that thought experiment. Well, you know, this is the claim that everything we see today, every racial disparity is the result of discrimination. That's the, the left-wing left explanation for all things in the world is structural inequalities are a result of structural racism. 
The conservative view, in my experience, is more likely to say behavioral choices, personal responsibility. So I pose this thought experiment. If for 10 years, blacks acted like Asians in all things relevant to both academic and economic success, starting at a young age forward. If, if black children attended school, now the fluency rate is five times higher for blacks and for whites, attended school at the same rate of Asians, studied at the same rate of Asians, did not have children out of wedlock, waited until they were married before having children, the did not get involved in gangs, crimes, drugs. So they looked they acted like Asians in all things. If after 10 years of that, we still saw the racial disparities that we do, then it is time to look for a structural inequality, to look for a ubiquitous racism explanation. But right now, when the behavioral disparities are so glaring and so obvious, it is woefully premature to say that what's going on here is implicit bias or explicit bias. The diversity delusion on faculty. The professoriate is tongue-tied when it comes to promoting the wonders of its patrimony. These privileged cowards, privileged cowards, these privileged cowards can't even summon the guts to prescribe the coursework that every student must complete in order to be considered educated, close quote. Why not? <laughs> I don't know. Why not? I don't know. I to be a tenured faculty yes. member at a major university, even at a, even at a small school, is a wonderful way of going through life and should provide the grounds, should provide an ironclad guarantee against the kinds of, they should be the most courageous people in I America. Know, I know, What's I know. going on? Peter, maybe you at, at Dartmouth were wise enough to structure a good curriculum that made sure you were educated in the basics. But when I was in college, I was at a college that had one of the best history departments in the country. They, those professors did not have the guts to tell me, you're not getting out of here until you study history. And so I didn't. They should, uh, the students are, the point of college is to cram as much knowledge into the empty noggins of these students as possible. We don't know enough to make the proper curricular choices. They must be told what matters. They no, must be. No 18-year-old. They'll stuff their curriculum with as much film courses as they possibly can, if given the discretion. But they've the, the faculty have lost the courage of saying Western civilization is the source of liberty, of freedom, of extraordinary accomplishment. They won't say that. Okay, again, the diversity delusion. Quote, the American founders, again, a longish quotation, but it's wonderful. The American founders drew on an astonishingly wide range of historical sources. They invoked the Greek city-states, the Carolingian dynasty, and the Ottoman Empire in the defense of the Constitution. And they assumed that the new nation's citizens would themselves be versed in history, and political philosophy. The citizens would know history. Ignorance of the intellectual trajectory that led to the rule of law and the West's astounding prosperity puts those achievements at risk." Close quote. You are not arguing that the universities have gone mad and that it's a terrible waste. You are arguing that the universities have gone mad and it represents a direct threat to the continuation of this republic. It certainly does. Uh, not only is the ignorance threatening our ability to understand how fragile 
And how precious is civil peace and a government restrained by rules? You can look, it's not just something in the past. Every single day around the world you see abuse of power, something the founders understood, this has to be checked. The, the concept of due process of law, of individual rights, that is unique. It's now been adopted. But the other thing that really scares me, Peter, that we, the universities are pumping into the body politic is this hateful identity politics. The Democratic primaries, you are going to see the university brought into the political realm, the intersectionality, everybody trying to one-up each other in their victim category. I am so sick of sentences that begin, as a female XYZ, or as a black female XYZ, or even better, as a trans black female XYZ. These are all trivial categories. Being female is not an accomplishment, and it tells you nothing about what is important about me, which is what I know, what I've accomplished, and what my beliefs are. Heather, why doesn't the market work? We began with an incident at Yale, your alma mater. As you argue, that university is as, as affected by the diversity delusion as any. What is Yale's acceptance rate? 5%, 5.2, 5 right. That is to say, for every place at Yale, 20 students apply. Right. Yale's not being made to suffer. No. Alums are still giving huge gifts yep. to Yale and yep. to other institutions. Yep. I can think of Hillsdale and Grove City, two little colleges in, there are 1,800 institutions in this country. Where's the reaction? Why isn't the market for higher education providing some correction? I think, sadly, uh, because parents are not so interested in knowledge for its own sake. I wish they were. I think, you know, this again, this is the greatest privilege. They want the prestige of these schools. It turns out, starting with the baby boomer parents that purport, baby boomers purported to be, oh, we're so anti-materialist, we're flower children, we're just gonna go to ashrams. They were fanatics for prestige. They wanted their kids into the most exclusive college they could get them into for bragging rights at the, at the cocktail party that their kid's going to Amherst. And right now, it's hard to break that monopoly. All right. Last question. Two quotations here, both of them from the diversity delusion. One comes from the great African-American historian and author W.E.B. Dubois. He lived until the 60s, but this is W.E.B. Dubois writing in 1903. I sit with Shakespeare, and he winces not. Shakespeare doesn't care the color of Dubois' skin. Across the color line, I move arm in arm with Balzac and Dumas. I summon Aristotle and Aurelius and what soul I will, and they come, all graciously, with no scorn nor condescension. The other quotation, a young student at Columbia University who is talking about a music course. Why did I have to listen to this Mozart? Who is this Mozart, this Haydn, these superior white men? There are no women, no people of color." Close quote. What does Heather McDonald have to say to that young woman at Columbia? Well, my heart is broken by both quotes. My heart is broken by the first quote to think of, of that man living in America's darkest period of hate that nevertheless understood that ideas were liberating and, and was willing to, to claim as his own the Western legacy, as was his right. And my heart is broken by the ignorance of this girl who has been encouraged 
in that thinking by the bureaucracy, by the faculty. She is destroying the greatest opportunity that a human being ever had to lose herself in beauty, in greatness, in sublimity. Uh, and, and she's going to carry the hatred that she feels towards Mozart and Haydn and woe to her because she is losing an opportunity to come out of herself into a realm of, of the most noble expression that has ever been granted human beings. But she's going to carry that hatred with her into civil society. And I think, Peter, without sounding apocalyptic or extreme, I think we are playing with fire. Uh, we, are, we, are, we are putting civil peace at jeopardy because it is impossible to overstate the degree to which students are being taught to hate, mm. not just Western civilization, but each other. I said that was the last question. I told a lie. I have one more question for you, Heather. I read earlier this petition that was put together at, when you spoke at Claremont McKenna and said it was ungrammatic. It was ungrammatically false. Right. Every charge was false, yeah, right. that you were fascist. Nevertheless, horribly ugly. Mm -hmm. You get there, students pound on the window so that you can barely speak. And if you look at some of the comments, you skim around the web and look at this beautifully researched, beautifully written yeah. book, The Thank Diversity you. Delusion, there are people who are calling you horrible names. Yeah. What keeps you at it? I, I believe in Western civilization. I believe in these books. I, I, if, if we stop reading them, they die. If we stop reading Trollope and Milton and Shakespeare, they die. It's on us. We have to keep, education is the passing on of an inheritance from one generation to another. And we have to keep these books alive. It's on us. Heather MacDonald, author of The Diversity Delusion, thank you. Thank you so much, Peter. For Uncommon Knowledge and the Hoover Institution and Fox Nation, I'm Peter Robinson.